This is a podcast from BBC Worldwide, who help fund new BBC programmes. Hello and welcome to The Fan Show. Today we're talking to a man who's written possibly more Doctor Who than anyone else. He's created three incarnations of The Doctor and six long-serving companions, and is the only person to have written for every season of the post-2005 show, as well as penning the award-winning 50th anniversary special. Now, lead writer, executive producer and lifelong Doctor Who fan Stephen Moffat is bidding farewell to Doctor Who after 12 years of service. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Over the next three weeks, we'll have the opportunity to reminisce with Stephen over the highs, the lows and everything in between when it comes to working on TV's longest-running sci-fi show. So let's start by dialing the clock back to before you were showrunner. It's well known that you've been a huge Doctor Who fan uh, since you were a kid, and mm. by 1999 you're an award-winning TV writer, and that's when your first episode of televised Doctor Who comes about. The comic relief sketch, The Curse of Fatal Death. Mm. How did that come about? Well, my wife uh, <laughs> was... Uh, was producing uh, Comic Relief that year. And the first thing that the producer of Comic Relief has to do, uh, because you've got to get lots of people uh, to do things for free, is recruit people. And obviously she was married to a, to, to a comedy writer. She used Doctor Who, knowing I was a Doctor Who fan and knowing this was possibly the only advantage she'd ever have out of being married to a Doctor Who fan. She used Doctor Who and said, why don't you come and do a Doctor Who for us for free? And I said, well, God, if I can do that, I'll absolutely do it. I bet you were like, yes. I was. I, was in, I thought, well, I thought in what is possibly the least accurate prediction of all time, well, this would be my only chance to write Doctor Who. Yeah. It's full of things that you use a lot later on in Doctor Who, including the master. Both my ideas. All of your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> including, I think, my favourite thing about it is the master going around the series repeatedly, uh, which is basically the plot of Heaven Sent. That's what it is. Albeit really, with yes. a lot more poo. Was this your way of using all of your best Doctor Who ideas? I've always been absolutely fascinated by time travel stories. And of course, Doctor Who is the only show on earth where time travel is taken as a given. It's just taken as a given. You don't have to invent time machine in the first scene. He lives inside one. So you've always got it there. Now, I know that's not been generally, not even in my time, been the centre of the show the fact he can time travel. But I do think it's something you should use. He's got a strange relationship to time, a very strange relationship to time. And it would be, it would be remiss not to explore that from time to time. Uh, so I, I was just having a whale of attempting all that. Uh, yes, that's right, he keeps falling down the sewer and getting older yes, yeah, and older. Yeah, yeah, and, and then he comes out in his little Zimmer frame. At the time, uh, 1999, when The Phantom Menace was rebooting the Star Wars franchise uh, for kids, did you feel there was a potential for Doctor Who to come back? Well, there definitely was. There never was a point when Doctor Who couldn't have come back. It was kind of an outrage what happened, that they managed to keep it off, the, uh, off for so many years, when so many people wanted it back. Um, it was doing pretty well in the ratings. It was doing very, very well critically. And uh, anybody who knows the Doctor Who for real knows that Sylvester McCoy was terrific and Sophie Aldred was terrific. And we were actually making some really good shows. There was no reason for it to go off. When we did it on Comic Relief, I think the ratings went up to 10 million every time Doctor Who was on. It, it, in any other real world situation, it would have come back the following year. So fast forward to November 2003, uh, it's announced that Doctor Who would be returning with Russell T Davis as showrunner. How did you find out? I think Sue told me at some point, it's all going to be about Sue. She said, I think they're giving Doctor Who to, to Russell. I didn't particularly react to that because I'd known he'd been sort of vaguely around the place with it for a while. And then I was in America, I was in New York, attending 
a DVD launch of Coupling. I somehow logged onto the internet. It was difficult in those days. <laughs> you actually had to put a balloon up and, uh, and light a small candle. <laughs> it was, uh, and I saw that Russell was bringing it back and I thought, oh my God, it's actually going to happen. How and did you feel? I mean, as a fan, what, I mean, did you feel nervous or excited? Was it, must have been a combination of feelings. Well, I didn't, uh, I didn't doubt that it would be good. I didn't doubt that for a second because I knew Russell. I knew Russell slightly. I knew Russell's writing. They were giving the show to a premier dramatist who was also a Doctor Who fan. I just thought, well, that's going to work. That's definitely yeah. going to work. It's not going to be somebody who doesn't really get it, trampling all over it. Mm. It's going to be someone who loves it, who really knows what they're doing at a level that Doctor Who hadn't had before. Uh, maybe with, with the possible exception of Douglas Adams. And even mm. he was in his early days. This was Russell uh, at, the, at the height of his powers taken on. So I knew that would be good. And of course, I, I wanted to get an episode. Of course yeah, I yeah. Well, you got six episodes. How did you two meet? We met years and years and years ago. Uh, I remember the very first time I ever read his name anywhere. Uh, I was staying with the producer of Press Gang. In those glamorous days, uh, I, I, I just slept on the sofa downstairs. <laughs> I remember that. That was my, that was my television life. And uh, as I woke up, um, I saw there was a whole scattering of correspondence, of, uh, of secret correspondence, of private and intimate correspondence spread on the coffee table. So naturally, I read it. Uh, and one of the letters was um, Russell writing in, uh, looking for work, basically. And I remember just thinking, <laughs> Who's that? They need him for me. I'm not a writer around here, for God's sake. I'm here. I've got the sofa. There isn't another yeah. sofa. You can't have him. And then I, uh, I think I met him in Sandy's office. Uh, Sandy Hasty, the producer of Press Gang. And uh, I mean, not, not in any sort of uh, vastly important way. I think I was just prattling around the place. Yeah, yeah. And he was in pitching a, a show. How did he know about your love for Doctor Who and how did he bring you on board? We met many times after that, not, not many, several times. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a Doctor Who novel, which is very good, mm -hmm. Damaged Goods. Uh, so I knew, therefore, he was a Doctor Who fan. Loads of people were Doctor Who fans. We, I mean, we sort of uh, uh, enshrined this myth that no one was a Doctor Who fan during those years. There were loads of Doctor Who fans. Almost anybody vaguely arty was a Doctor Who fan at some level. He was a very, very major one, and I heard that he actually purchased his own Dalek, which later appears in Asylum of the Daleks and nearly kills Matt Smith. We, we would occasionally bump into each, other, into each other at things. I think he sent me a nice email about Curse of Fatal Death. There was all that going on. Mm. So I, I did know he was a fan. He knew I was a fan. But, you know, contrary to the stories I tell, uh, I was never remotely denied the fact I was a Doctor Who fan, except once, which was when I first met Sue. I said something. Very, very early on in the relationship, on a date, uh, she sort of looked at me and said, are you a Doctor Who fan? And, you know, the, the icebergs crashed in my head. And I thought, what do I do this? Because, you know, I'm still working on this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, no, 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 Doctor Who, no. no. And even as, I, even as I thought that, I thought, the objective here is to get her to come back to my flat at some point. That's, that's fairly high in the list of priorities. What do I do? Burn it down? I mean, what do I do with all that stuff? Yeah. With all those Daleks, all those Doctor Who magazines? I don't know how long it would take to conceal the fact I'm a Doctor Who fan. I'd hide it under the porn. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was terrifying. Uh, so that was the only time. And, and, and it later emerged, I had to say, you know, well, actually, the extent to which she uncovered my Doctor Who fandom carries on to this day. I mean, it was, wow, it's really driven a truck through our life by this point. <laughs> mm. So, 
Yeah, but other than that, no, I was perfectly open about being a Doctor Who fan, yeah, so yeah, yeah. He, would have, uh, he would have known that. After I got home from uh, uh, the infamy of coupling in America, because I wanted at least to be in the frame, I emailed Russell. I got uh, the uh, Russell's email from Paul, Paul Cornell, and emailed him and said, look, uh, I, I didn't say, I didn't do anything as egregious as ask, uh, although that's what all, you know, every atom of my being was wanting to do. I just said, look, congratulations, and from the heart, you are, you are, you are the perfect choice, which I did believe. I did mm. think this was a huge statement of intent and integrity from the BBC that they were getting Russell. And he responded almost immediately with, well, look, I'm down for six. Uh, but if there are more than six, uh, I'll be approaching you. Wow. Uh, so I thought, wow, that's great. But I also wondered if it was just polite. But uh, then, of course, you wrote The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances. Yes. Eventually. So how did it feel to put pen to paper on your first proper Doctor Who, given that previously you made some rather unkind comments about the quality of the classic era and have described yourself as an angry Doctor Who fan? I, n I never worried about that then at all. Um, the unkind comments I made cause, uh, were because I was uh, out with uh, some friends of mine, including Paul. They were doing an interview for a fanzine and I was just sitting there drinking in the corner getting bored because <laughs> I was young and the conversation wasn't all about me. So it was just appalling for me. I'm not like that anymore, but it was awful in those days. So I just started taking the rip out of Doctor Who in the way that Doctor Who fans do, which is I can't bear to admit how much I love this. So I will attempt to seem detached and grown up by scorning that which occupies my every waking moment. I don't yeah. want to admit I am throwing stones at the pretty one next door. That's what I'm doing. So I start saying a lot of rubbish things yeah. about Doctor Who that I do not believe, but also fueled by a kind of pomposity in my younger days that uh, I thought it was something I'd had Seems like nothing. Press Gang and Joking Apart, two shows that had not changed the face of television in any way whatsoever except for inside my brain. And I thought I was, uh, I thought I was something. So I was slagging off that old show that I loved so much and would be probably watched that day. And I went straight out from that meeting to a, uh, to a meeting the next day uh, where I was involved in planning a sitcom called Chalk, which went on to be even more infamous. <laughs> Uh, in uh, in the pantheon of comedy than the American version of coupling. It was a complete disaster, derided by all who saw it. So I, I learned my lesson. I learned my pompous lesson. Uh, and I got the job. I was so thrilled to get the job. Uh, and so thrilled to have a two-parter. And, 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 I mean, I was just over the moon, just properly over the moon. I couldn't wait to do it. I was so excited. And I was away with my brother-in-law, staying, staying at a house he was doing up in France. And I was sitting down to, to, to write my first scene. And that's when you get the cold wave, because that's when I thought, you know, the thought that had not up until that point occurred to me was I'd never written anything remotely like this before in my life. Mm. I had not done that. And I'd read Russell's uh, first few scripts. They were superlative. I hadn't read scripts as good as that ever, really. They were just at a different level. So I was already feeling pretty oh, you're not going to be the prettiest girl in the room today. You know, this is, this, this, is, this is better than I can do anyway. On my best day, this is better than I can write. Uh, so I was already thinking that. And I sat down and I thought, I actually, I mean, I, I write sitcoms. I've been writing sitcoms for 10 years. I have no idea how mm. to do this. So I had absolute terror and soldiering through absolute terror, which Russell assures me he did not experience at all. He just got the hell on with it. I was just saying, what do you do? What is a scene if it doesn't have jokes in it? 
And in fact, if you look at The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances, which I think are very good episodes, I'm very pleased with them, but my sitcom Twitch, which is evident to this day, is all over the place. For mm. all that it's uh, a scary, dramatic, serious Doctor Who, it is gag after gag after gag. It is the work of a comedy writer yeah. uh, turning his hand notionally to horror, to child-friendly yeah, horror. Yeah. I remember sending my, my first script in appallingly late, <clears throat> something I never ever remedied throughout my time in Doctor Who. I sent my script in so dreadfully late. Within about an hour, uh, I got a Rus uh, an email from Russell, which was the most incandescently gorgeous email about the script. And then several more from him about how much he loved it. Wow. Uh, and I was absolutely over the moon. Yeah, yeah. I was so yeah, excited. Yeah. It wasn't until I watched those two episodes mm. as an adult that I realised how sexually charged some of those scenes are. Where Rose asked the Doctor if he'd dance with her. Mm. You know, for me, that whole scene completely changes the Doctor from being an asexual, weird uncle to a romantically available hero for both men and women. Mm. Um, do you think this was necessary for Doctor Who to succeed in the 21st century? No. I don't think it's necessary. I mm. think it was already there. Mm. I think it is very naive to look at old Doctor Who and think it's not there. First mm. of all, you have to look at old Doctor Who in the context of other children's shows, for that is what it was, and in the context of the television at the time. Television at the time didn't do a lot of that. Children's television did none of it. Uh, how many people flirt at all in old Doctor Who? Nobody. Who is the most flirtatious character in classic Doctor Who? The Doctor, by a country mile. So. It was already there, and they traded on it, and they used it. There was chemistry between uh, the third Doctor and John Grant, mm -hmm. as we know. Uh, there was chemistry between Tom Baker and Elizabeth Slayton. They mm. used it all the time. So the Doctor was not completely romantically unavailable. He was romantically distant, and that is what he continued to be, and continues to be, and she will continue to be, in the new series. I don't think there's a huge shift. Television has moved on. We talk about those things. But we don't necessarily change it. Now, and what's different is, in the old show, we just assume the Doctor has no uh, interest in, uh, in anyone around him. That remains true. The only thing that changes is that, um, in I think it's in School Reunion, uh, Rose challenges him on it and says, what, what, what is it? What's going on here? As you really would if you were hanging out with a good-looking young fella. Mm. At some point, you might say, eh, what, is, are you, what are you thinking? Yeah. And he actually says it's the only time it's definitively said in Doctor Who. I'm just going to regenerate and you're going to get old. That doesn't work. There, you know, the story of the Green Death is as blatant as this. Uh, Joe Grant falls in love with someone she specifically refers to as a younger version of the Doctor. Mm, and John Pertwee yes, stands there suffering yeah, yeah. to yeah. hell. And he cannot, yeah. when, when she's off to marry him at the end, he can't make eye contact with the young man. He yeah. just can't, can't do it. So it's there. It's, it, okay. it's in the show throughout. Is he active? No. He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman of the mm. universe. He would not, uh, he would <clears> not, <throat> in the absence of commitment, indulge in such things. But, yeah, and, yeah. and his lack of commitment extends to his entire planet. Mm. So he doesn't, he doesn't get involved in that. But he is a figure of romantic interest. Yeah. And again, just to be serious about this, uh, there were plenty of people watching classic Doctor who thought the Doctor was a bit of all right. I mean, that's absolutely true. You don't. You, you think Peter Davison went completely <laughs> unnoticed. <laughs> the most critically acclaimed episode you wrote during this period is Blink. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say the Weeping Angels have become truly iconic. They've been absorbed into the public consciousness along with the Daleks and the TARDIS. How does it feel to have left an indelible mark like that on Doctor Who history? I love that. I love that the Weeping Angels are 
so important and mm. that they've actually they probably snuck in at number three in terms of Doctor Who monsters. Yeah. I think to make a genuinely great Doctor Who monster is very difficult. And we know that because we've made so many monsters in Doctor Who. How many monsters have there been in Doctor Who? How many of them are up on the up on the top shelf? Hardly any. And I was, you know, I think that you know, Weeping Angels can't really compete with Cybermen and Daleks. But you know, they're you know, they're, they're, they're out there. They're, they're out there. there. You know, they're, yeah. they're on, sort of mini shelf just below. Them. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm really. I'm hugely proud of that, yeah. genuinely. You should be, you should be. They are genius. I've got one they in are... my garden, right at the end of my garden, standing That's there. That's terrifying. It's not really, because you know, I, I just made them up, so I know it's not. <laughs> That's not true. Really <laughs> well, actually, one of the reasons why they're so genius is, is the end of Blink suggests that all statues are weeping angels. Yeah. Other normal things you've made scary include shadows, cracks on walls, ticking clocks, snowmen, things hiding under the bed, things in the corners of your eye. For a show that you've consistently maintained is a children's show, You've certainly taken it to some scary places. How do you strike a balance? Well, first of all, that kind of fear, that kind of horror, is is of the nursery. It's the it's the horrors of childhood. It's not the horrors of adulthood. Mm. I mean, I'm frightened of going to the dentist and <laughs> and of of, uh, of my GP clearing his throat suddenly. These are the things that terrify <laughs> me. Uh, not not monsters. I'm not scared of the dark. I'm not scared of shadows. I'm fine with all those things now. But uh, when you when you talk about Doctor Who, you, you, it is from the angle of the nursery. It is what scared you as a child, mm. and and the way in which a child populates the ordinary world around them with uh, not just with horrors but with wonder and excitement. They they see old people as it was wise and fascinating. They see cracks in the walls as portals to other worlds. They see statues as people coming to get them. Um, they, they, they see magic and mystery and horror and joy everywhere, uh, which in a way is how the Doctor looks at the universe, mm. but is also the key to writing the show. Mm. Because Doctor Who, properly, doesn't take place in outer space like Star Trek and Star Wars. It takes place under your bed, the back of your whole cupboard, yeah. um, at your school, on the, on the, in the forest you have to walk through on the way home. That's where Doctor Who lives. Yeah, yeah. Is that how you see the universe as well? The moment I, uh, I, I you know, the, the radiator clangs, I think, wonder what that really <laughs> is. Because I'm hardwired to think about Doctor Who stories. Yeah. And that does not come from doing the job. That just comes from... Being a fan. Yes. Yeah. I'm hardwired to see everything uh, as, a, as a potential Doctor Who yeah. story. So your second story for Russell is Girl in the Fireplace. Mm. And it was the first time you wrote about Doom Loved, which is so, something that you return to a lot later with River Song. What is it about love that is doomed, uh, unrequited or frustrated due to obstacles like time that is so appealing to you? I do love a twisted love story. I don't know why. You do, um, yeah. <laughs> I think because a lot of the love stories in your life, actually, generally speaking, all but one, in fact, at the maximum of one love story, maybe including that one, uh, they're all doomed. <laughs> you know, when you, when you make that vast and incredible connection with another human being uh, that defines you and elevates you and terrifies you and excites you, there's an expiry date on it. You know, it, it, I mean, sometimes it ends suddenly, sometimes it ends after many, many years. There is something about falling in love with somebody uh, when you really fall in love with them that is the first time in a moment of sometimes terrifying, sometimes enlightening, realization that uh, you, you actually now know who you are. Mm. You know where you fit. You think, oh, that, I'm the person who loves that person. That means that, that I'm, I fit here. I think to write a character who never falls in love would mean you'd be writing a character who doesn't ever get who they are, who doesn't ever see themselves 
reflected and forgiven in the eyes of another person. I think if you do not write that, you have not understood them because I don't think you understand yourself until that point. As I say, most love stories end. And most love stories end before you do. So, mm. you know, we've all got a, a back catalogue of heartbreak and, uh, and joy, haven't we? Mm. And we've all defined ourselves and learned about ourselves in those moments. So to write a character who does not have that moment, however, you know, you can have a love story like he, he sort of falls in love with Rose in his doctor way. And, but, he, but he stands away from her because he knows he can't. Yeah. And he explains why he can't. And then he has the grotesque, sadistic humiliation of having to watch his human clone go away oh. with her. You think, God, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even the hero of my own love story. Oh. How did that happen? Yeah, then yeah. you have, a, you know, uh, Madame de Pompadour and the girl in the fireplace is, is the fling at the party. You know, is that momentary thing that could have been so much more, you think, but wasn't. Mm. So it's the loss, it's the love that doesn't happen. Yeah. In the writer's tale, Russell says, under that graphic exterior, you're a romantic man, uh, but you only let that show in your writing. I think that's kind of true. What, my, my gruffness? Yeah. I think only in the context of a bunch of Doctor Who fans does this come across as gruff. <laughs> Everywhere else, I come across as frankly a bit limp and wet. But if, uh, if in this context I'm, the, I'm gruff and manly, yeah. then I embrace that. I'd probably give it Aww. a fond hug. <laughs> well, at this point, I think we should talk about River, played by the marvellous Alex Kingston, uh, who you introduced uh, in your fourth and final contribution before you took over as showrunner. Did you have a plan for her when you wrote Silence in the Library? Certainly not. I had read uh, The Time Traveller's Wife. And when I wrote Girl in the Fireplace, I remember I, was, I specifically said to Russell, we should do something of the mood and tone of The Time Traveller's Wife. So I was specifically doing it there. I wasn't, except obviously very, very uh, uh, subconsciously, right at the top of my subconscious, doing that with River, except it turned out much closer, of course. River came from a... Well, from two things. One, I, need, I needed the Doctor and Donna in the library. Mm -hmm. uh, and I needed some archaeologists to come in and meet them in the Muljoin forces. But I didn't want to do that bit where the Doctor is locked up for... Because well, the first thing you do if you met the Doctor is lock him up. And that's what they do in the classic series, lock him up for an episode. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. We had the psychic paper specifically, invented brilliantly by Russell, specifically to get him out of that. But I thought there is no piece of psychic paper that says it's okay that I've been in a... Uh, uh, you know, this library that's been sealed for a hundred years. You know, there's no piece of paper that says that. So I thought, what if he knows one of the archaeologists? Mm -hmm. I thought, oh God, that is so lame. That <laughs> is such a cool... Oh, Jeff, how are you, mate? <laughs> ah, here you are. Oh, hang on, it could be someone he hasn't met yet, and that could be a bit confusing. What if it's a kind of, kind of sexy woman? <laughs> <laughs> who's just suddenly treating him as if she's yeah. married. I thought, oh, and that, of course, takes over the story the moment you do that. Yeah. Of course it does. Yeah. Of course, everything else is subordinate to, uh, uh, to River. The other place it came from may not be a story you want for here, but um, Russell and I went through a phase of trying to work out Doctor Who titles with rude acronyms to wind up people on internet message boards. I, uh, I thought, I, I just shot back with a, with, a, with a river song ending. Work it out. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he said, what's, what's a river song? And I said, oh, I'll just, I'll just call somebody river song. <laughs> <laughs> and she better die. And that way, that way we've got the acronym. That's and, brilliant. And uh, That's then we brilliant. didn't use the title. And, uh, and I remember sitting on the train with Julian Russell saying, well, originally I called uh, this episode a River Song Ending. And Julian saying, oh, I think that's quite good. And I said, we can't actually use that. I don't think to this day 
Julie understood what Russell and I were saying, that we can't, mm. we can't actually, let's just can't do it. <laughs> Looking back at your time on the show, I think it's fair to say that you're rather fond of a powerful and mysterious woman. Uh, why do you have a fondness for writing characters like Missy, Riversong, Kavarian and Madame Vastra? What a strange selection. I don't know if you're, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that I uh, particularly do. First of all, if you're going to have someone go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Doctor, uh, they better be able to match him uh, at every level. So a certain, a certain quality of power and enigma mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, is good uh, because he's like that. So, uh, you know, that, I suppose. And, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have a particular. I mean, there's loads of, also loads of female characters who are not, not the least bit like that. So powerful and mysterious women. Powerful and mysterious men, just powerful and mysterious. If you say someone comes in and is powerful and mysterious, you think, okay, that's interesting. If you say someone comes in and is accessible and affable, you say, eh, it's a sitcom then. Yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I've got a, a particular uh, fetish for that. So Russell decides to step down during the production of Series 4 and offered you the job via email uh, around the time of writing Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. What did it mean to you as a lifelong Doctor Who fan? Oh, it was thrilling. It was thrilling. I mean, if, I, if I'm honest, I thought it was probably circling. I mean, I, I used to lie about this all the time, but I mean, I, I, mean, I, I knew that Russell was going to leave, and I knew from, from quite a time before he was leaving, I knew he was going to do four, four series. But I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to mm. think about Russell leaving. I was really happy. I was really happy doing our Doctor Who every year, doing my other stuff, coming back to Doctor Who. I was really incredibly happy with that period of my life. It was, it was a golden period. I was excited by it. I loved it. Didn't want it to end. I remember saying to Russell and meaning it, so look, if, if me doing more episodes would make it easier for you to stay, I'll do more episodes. And he said, maybe he was lying, of course, but he said, it would actually make it a lot easier, but I am going. Maybe he just thought more episodes from Moffat, I'm out of here. But, uh, <laughs> but I like to think he was telling the truth. So I wasn't, I wasn't anxious for this time to come at all. I was actually mm. dreaded slightly him leaving. And then people started talking to me in cryptic terms, which I ignored. I ignored because I was so, so loving that time of my life uh, and my connection with the show uh, that I didn't, I mean, I think I must have been blocking it. I remember Jane Tranter saying to me at the Voyage of the Dan read through, we must get together and dis discuss the next five years. Uh, and I didn't get it. I said to Sue, God, they're keen on me at the BBC. Five-year plan for me at the BBC. That's amazing. God, I'm well in there. And Sue's saying, you're talking about Doctor Who? And I said, no, no, we're not talking about Doctor Who. And then Julie sat with me in LA explaining, well, we're going to leave. We're going to do these specials and then we'll be gone. I was saying, oh. <laughs> I was so hungover, I think, at the time. I didn't really understand that she was sitting there patiently explaining. And then... Uh, and then I got the uh, the extraordinary email. I was on a plane to Greece to discuss the Greek version of coupling. No, really, the Greek wow. version of coupling. <laughs> Sue and I would just sell the rights to coupling anywhere we felt like going. <laughs> it was we took a free trip. You say, now yeah, yeah. pays very much, but we want a free trip in a nice hotel and some rec restaurant recommendations. <laughs> then you can make your version of coupling. So we're, we're we're flying out there, and I got the email and I passed it to Sue, and she said, and she, and she went, I knew it. I knew they were going to offer you that job. <laughs> and I said, at least I've got my health. <laughs> <laughs> and then in October 2007, you were announced to be writing the screenplays for Steven Spiel uh, Spielberg's Tintin. Then May 2008, you were announced as Russell's successor to Doctor Who. Then August 2008, it was announced that you and Mark Gatiss would be making a modern day version of Sherlock Holmes. Plus, you've got two children at the time of under mm. 10. 
Was this the most complicated year of your life? God, yes. It's about 10 years ago now, um, as you've just worked out, as you can tell from those numbers. That's Done 10 years ago. Hey. <laughs> um, yes. I remember just being very, very excited. And I remember realising there was no way on earth this worked. I remember that, uh, though it, uh, I haven't talked about it much, there was another show uh, also in the mix uh, called Adam and Eve, which uh, had been greenlit. And Sue had done a wall planner of what it meant to write all three series. And I said, I can't. It's just that's not possible. I can't do all three of those. Uh, one of them has to go because they would all, be, all none of them were capable of being of me saying you lot go and do that. I had I had to be fully involved in a show runny way with all three of them. So I said no, I can't do that at maximum speed. At the BBC, uh, Mark and I had gone in, pitched Sherlock with the words Sherlock Holmes in the modern day, and we had a whole other pitch for it. And they, they said, yeah, yeah, go and do that. I said, can we do a pitch anyway? Because it's awesome. <laughs> so we did. And during the pitch, it it, it came out that I was taking over Doctor Who which Mark didn't know until that point. So he said, oh, wow, yeah, congratulations. And as we went out of the lift, he said, well, that's brilliant. I'm delighted you're doing Doctor Who. And they said, and, and Sherlock, and I'm doing he, several things on it. And I said, yeah, yeah. I suppose we can rest when we retire. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we've got time for for part one. We'll be back next week with some of this. I was so insanely busy. I didn't have time to leave. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this BBC Worldwide Digital Studios podcast. For more from Doctor Who The Fan Show, visit youtube.com forward slash Doctor Who.